tetragrammaton. When I was maybe around 18 years old, that's when I was all of a sudden turning my visions into reality. And I went to an international bodybuilding championship. I was 18 years old. I went to Stuttgart and I won. And it was kind of like, oh my God, you know, I, I won my first international, the junior Mr. Europe, the junior best built man of Europe. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is the first time I'm Austrian won an international competition like that. And they said, myself, you know, I feel like my dream and my vision that I had for my bodybuilding career is becoming more and more reality. And so I felt like it really worked because I was chasing this vision. And then eventually with the age of 20, after winning Mr. Europe at, uh, you know, when I was 19, and then, uh, you know, another in Mr. International competition, and then I went to the Mr. Universe contest with 19 and I placed second. And I saw the very platform and the, the very theater that Reg Park, that Steve Reeves, my idols, won Mr. Universe. And I said to myself, I cannot believe that I'm actually standing at the same podium as my heroes and my idols were standing on. And then, sure enough, like that inspired me so much that I became runner-up, second-place winner. With the age of 19, this has never ever been heard of, uh, something like that. I became kind of the new sensation, the young farm boy from Austria. Oh, you should see his arms. He's, he's going to be the next monster. He's going to be the next champion and all this stuff. But sure enough, a year later, I come back with the age of 20, and I became the youngest Mr. Universe ever on that very same stage. So that very vision that I had of Reg Park winning Mr. Universe, but placing my head on it, you know, that's the way I was visualized it. And people screaming from the balcony, Arnold, Arnold, and all that stuff. All of that became an absolute reality, exactly the way I visualized it. So I think that between 18 and 20, I realized this is amazing that my dream and my vision become a reality. And so it became natural to me to then do everything like that, to start really concentrating on what is my next move instead. So I started getting a lot of thoughts, a lot of visions and a lot of dreams, and I started, you know, acting them out. How much of bodybuilding was mental? We think of it as a physical thing, but tell me the mental game of bodybuilding. Well, I would say everything is mental, even though in order to achieve the goal, it's physical. But first, you have to kind of create a vision and a goal. So that comes from your mind. So I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to look like and what competition I wanted to win and all that stuff. And that then you start working out and then you realize, you know, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of kind of planning. So you can have a vision of what your body should look like, but you still have to now figure out how do you train to get there? How do you make this vision become a reality? And so that's what I needed to do, put a program together. And again, I, I learned from the masters that were already Mr. Universe and Mr. Great Britain and Mr. America and all of those titles. And I studied their routines and I started, you know, kind of copying their routines. In some ways, of course, you have to kind of like create your own routine because every body is different. Every body type is different. So I just had to kind of really understand this is what I wanted to look like. 
And it's kind of like sculpting. You have the same kind of a mentality and mind of like an artist that is sculpting a sculpture, except you're doing it on your own body. And instead of using clay and chisels and, and all of that, and various different equipment to chisel and to mold, you do it with machines and with exercises. And so I do kind of create this body. And so it's totally meant you have to have that vision all the time in front of you. And you'd have to know exactly, okay, I need more we adult weights. I need more lower back striations. I need more trapezius muscles. I need more striations in the pectoral muscle. And there's specific exercises for each of those kind of body parts that you have to know and then you have to do. And then you have to know what are the reps, what are the sets. So you have to have a total understanding of the way the body is being created and what you need not just to copy someone else, but what do you need? What does your body need? Since your body is different than maybe your idol's body. So I think a lot of that is mental. I think that discipline is mental. That understanding that you need training partners that motivate you is mental. You have to keep your continuous motivation. So there's the long-term motivation, which is your long-term goal, your vision. But then there's short-term goals where you have to kind of say, okay, I mean, five months from now, I want to go. It comes to the July and I have made the national powerlifting. I have to bench press in those 300 pounds and I have to go and uh, have my arms develop to 20 inches uh, at the day of the competition. So these are the more short-term goals. The long-term goals is just to have the overall vision where I say, I want to be the greatest bodybuilder of all times. I want to be the most massive, the most defined, the best poser and all this kind of thing. So a lot of it, the whole motivation for you to go to the gym every day Everything comes from your mind. So I would say it's as much a mental game as it is a physical game. There's another aspect to your mental game of bodybuilding that nobody talks about. When you entered bodybuilding, it was a tiny fringe subculture. It seems like in addition to your vision building your body that no one had ever seen one like before, before you, people did not know about bodybuilding. It's like with Bruce Lee, people didn't know about martial arts before Bruce Lee. Right. Well, what was interesting about it is, and I talk a lot about that in my book, you know, be useful is, you know, sell, sell, sell. One of the important things is to really communicate and to make everyone become part of it. Because if you don't really sell your sport well, and if it isn't a popular sport, you know, there's never a chance to make money in it. And so it was very important to me that I get the sport to that level. Now, when I started out, I thought it was at that level because when I looked at Joe Weider's magazines and I saw the International Federation of Bodybuilding and I read about, you know, all these bodybuilders from all over the world that the training is training principles. And, uh, you know, I saw bodybuilders running around with surfboards under their arms and with the older girls around them. I saw them being in movies and uh, doing, you know, the we don't make waves and all those things with the Dave Draper did or the Hercules movies that Steve Reeves and Reg Park did or that Brad Harris did, Commissar X, which is a cop show in Germany. And he's a bodybuilding champion. So all those bodybuilders who are working and doing it, this is really huge. This is like equivalent to golf or the tennis. But then when I came to America, I realized that the magazine that Joe Weider published, the Muscle and Fitness and Flex and all those magazines, that it was exaggerated, that it was kind of like a takeoff the Charles Atlas kind of ads, you know, where you kind of like, you're skinny and you're lying down the beach 
someone kicks sand in your face, you don't know what to do. You know that they grab your girlfriend and they take her away and you're like an idiot sitting there. You can defend yourself and all of this stuff. So you say to yourself, okay, I got to go and train. So you get a whole of this Charles Atlas kind of courses. And within a few months, next summer comes around the corner. Next summer, no one is going to do that to me again. Right. And then, of course, there's exactly the same situation happening again. And now you punch the guy out, you take the girl, and you're the victor. So, this is what Chowita did with his magazines. He kind of like made you believe that you're part of this big, big community of this family, bodybuilders, millions of bodybuilders all over the world. And we are training in the best gymnasium, in Gorge Gym, in Vince's Gym, in all these different gyms. Uh, but when I came over to America, and I looked at those gyms that were kind of like gyms a little bit better than in Germany and in Austria, but not much. And I felt that, well, Chowita doesn't have really airplanes to deliver food supplements and uh, equipment all over the world. This was a promotional picture where he painted his name on a plane and that was it. And you know, that all these trucks that he had kind of advertised and, and used in the magazines, that none of that really existed. That, you know, his stuff was delivered by the post office or by other delivery services. So it was like totally made up fantasy stuff that I bought in as a kid. And then when I came over here, I realized that is not the case. And that bodybuilding was actually not popular here. Not that it had a terrible reputation, but no one really knew that in the beginning, people always asked us, wow, look at the body that you have. Look at muscles. What are you, are you a wrestler? You know, were what, what you a football player? And I said, they would just guess, you know, every kind of a sport other than bodybuilding. And so I said to myself, I think we have to change it. So all of a sudden, my vision and my goals expanded. And so instead of just thinking about, I got to become the greatest bodybuilder of all time, it expanded to, I have to make bodybuilding as a sport, a recognized sport all over the world, because then I can benefit much more from the success of bodybuilding. You can make a living of that. People will be more interested in seeing you in a movie. So I literally had to hire a publicist in the beginning. I remember in 1974, we hired a publicist that helped us promote bodybuilding and to get me the Tonight Show and then the Murph Griffin Show and the Mike Douglas Show and all those different shows where I could really explain bodybuilding and get people really excited about it. And then we did the book Pumping Iron and then I started writing books, Arnold Education of a Bodybuilder, Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding and those, and did speeches all over the world. And so we promoted and promoted, promoted, got it into movies and did movies myself. And now, you know, the whole thing eventually, with the help of many, many other people, bodybuilding has exploded and is now into something that literally everyone does. And not just guys, but women, very, very popular amongst women because it makes them feel like, this is one way of getting equality. You know, I've got to get strong. I got to get fit. I can then do the same job that the guys do. I can go to the military. I can go to join the police force. I can join the fire department because I can get as strong as those guys are and I can train for that. So I think that since then, bodybuilding has taken off and it's gotten really big. If you were to guess when you started, how many bodybuilders were there in the world? I would say, I would say there were probably, you know, thousands thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, but that's definitely, if you think about that, then the population was around 7 billion, you know, now we have 8 billion population. And now I would say 
that half of the world is working out. And there's no two ways about that because we can see how the industry is booming. We can see how much money is being made in the food supplement business, how much money is being made in the equipment business, in the gymnasium business, in the franchise business, in all of those areas. I mean, it's just really booming now. And more and more people are joining clubs and they're training at home and they have, you know, the videos that they can follow people or online. They can follow people, how they exercise. So it has become a real business and a real phenomenon. Did you ever get to meet Charles Atlas? No, I never met Charles Atlas, but I mean, uh, I was very happy to meet, you know, Reg Park and Steve Reeves and all those old legends. And that I was able to work with Joe Weider, who brought me to America. I was able to meet Bob Hoffman, who was the, the king of weightlifting back with the AAU back in the 60s and 70s. I was able to meet the Sigmund Klein, who was one of the early strongmen after Joe Sander, uh, Eugene Sander. And I met uh, a lot of the old timers. I met them, but I didn't meet Charles Atlas. No, I didn't meet Eugene Sander, which was my, he was my hero. Tell me about Joe Weider. Joe Weider was an interesting guy that he was a great visionary. You know, he was a, a great businessman and he luckily was a fanatic about the bodybuilding and about physical culture, about training and exercise and all this. And I think that there was no one that I've ever met that lived his sports in literally 24 hours a day. And there was not one conversation that you would have with him that is not somehow going back to training and to food supplements or equipment and stuff like that. Even though he was somewhat of a renaissance man because he didn't only teach me about bodybuilding and about selling bodybuilding and selling equipment and food supplements and how to sell and how to approach to customers, how to build a customer base. But he also taught me about art. I remember him taking me to art galleries in New York and I remember him taking me to art auctions. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an art auction when I came to America. And he would take me to these art auctions and he would buy art. And then eventually I got into it when I started making money and started buying art. And I started getting interested, having a collection. And so he really taught me a lot about business. And he also encouraged me always to go and take business classes, which I did when I came to America. I took English classes, then math classes, then business administration classes, accounting classes, management classes, and all this. Then eventually I got a degree in business administration, but it was all because of Joe inspiring me and saying, you got to learn about business, you know, and the, the only thing that really counts is your brain and how smart you are, because this is something that no one can take away from you. And I think that was because he was a Jew. He, I think it was part of his religion and his upbringing, the biggest Jewish people have been taken from, you know, the whole history and they've been killed and all of this stuff. So that he felt always like we learned a long time ago that the only thing that someone cannot take from you is, you know, your intelligence, your brain power. And we're so really developed that that is really at the end. You can buy cars, you can buy art, you can buy houses, you can buy real estate, you can invest in different things. But the best investment that I end this is your head, it's your brain. And I listened to him. So I, there was a lot of other men and women that I listened to that helped me uh, to inspire me in those various different directions. 
to go beyond just bodybuilding and to learn other things. Were you in love with bodybuilding or was it a means to an end? Uh, both. I mean, it's like uh, I was in love with bodybuilding simply because, and that this is something that I also talk in my book, being useful is, is that you have to find your talent. You know, I was searching for my talent. I was searching my whole childhood. What is it that I could excel in? What could I be the best in? And, you know, I was playing soccer, I was trying to ski, and the uh, ice curling, uh, all the different kind of things. But the, when I started lifting weights, I felt kind of like something clicked. I felt I found something that I could be good at. And so first it was weightlifting, Olympic lifting. Then it was powerlifting. And then it's, eventually it turned into bodybuilding. So I did them all three for a while, and it was fantastic. And I started getting obsessed with that. So the idea of being able to build muscles, to rebuild your body, to build it in the Mr. Universe physique. Uh, but at the same time, I felt kind of like my dream is to get to America. I was not happy in Austria. I was not happy growing up uh, around farms. You know, when I saw news reels and news footage of America, I always felt kind of like, that's where I want to be. When I see those high rises of New York, when I see the Golden Gate Bridge, when I see the six lane highways with those big cars with big wings on the back going down the highway, those old big Cadillacs, Chevrolets, I was like absolutely inspired by that. And I said, I got to be part of this country. I got to go to America. You know, I don't feel like I'm really Austrian. I think I'm American. So, I mean, I was like, I was, I felt kind of like, okay, now how do you get to America? You know, you can buy a ticket and you can fly over there, but then when you go over there, you can get to be a visitor. How do you get a job over there? How do you do any of that? So, I mean, I wanted to move to America. So I felt like, well, bodybuilding actually is an American sport. So if I get really good at bodybuilding, if I become a world champion, I think America would notice me and somehow I didn't even think about Chowita at this point. That's just somehow someone would invite me to America to compete in America at the Mr. Universe contest or Mr. World competition or Mr. Olympia or whatever. And that's exactly what happened after I won my second Mr. Universe title in London in 1968. I all of a sudden got a telegram from Chowita and uh, with an invitation, says, I'm sending you the airplane tickets. I want you to come to Miami to compete in the Mr. Universe contest. And uh, then maybe you think about training over here and staying over here for a while. And so I said, oh my God, this couldn't be true. I mean, that another one of my dreams and visions is becoming a it's reality. Incredible. It was just unbelievable. Incredible. So, I, so I, I came to America. I took this opportunity, came over here with just this, a gym bag and literally just, you know, $20. I didn't have enough money. I remember asking Joe Weider in Miami for some money because he said, as if, if I arrive in Los Angeles, I wouldn't have the money to go with a taxi to an apartment or to the gym or anything like this. So he gave me some cash and helped me out. And uh, I came to America and I never left since. Do you think if you were born in America, you would have the same love for it? Or do you think the distance allowed the fantasy to be more powerful? Well, you know, th th this is obviously just guessing. Yeah, hypothetical. We don't, we we don't, don't know. know. I cannot tell you we love America the same way today as, uh, as an American one, or do I love it more because I'm a foreign one? That I don't know, but I can tell you one thing. 
that I have a tremendous love for America. And I feel truly that America gave me everything. So America, but the very fact that I saw it when I was 10 years old, I saw the footage, black and white footage of America. It was the thing that inspired me to go to America. It inspired me to get into bodybuilding. It inspired me to become a world champion in bodybuilding so I can come to America. And then when I came to America, it, America helped me to become even a greater champion in bodybuilding because now I was training here with the best bodybuilders in the world and with the best equipment in the world. Everything was the best. So America helped me to become the greatest bodybuilder of all time and winning seven Mr. Olympia competitions and five Mr. Universe and Mr. World and, and Mr. International and all this stuff. The 13 World Bodybuilding Championships is extraordinary, but the, the most anyone has ever won. And then to go on and to get into the movie business and to, not only to get into it and to be an actor, but to become a movie star, which was one of my dreams, and to become a celebrity, and then to do the movies that the blockbuster movies. Because there's a lot of people that get in movies, but then to be fortunate enough to work with directors like Jim Cameron or Ivan Reitman or John McTurnan, people like that, John Williams that did Conan the Barbarian, and we work with people like that. That is unbelievable. I mean, what a privilege to work with directors like that and they are the ones that made me become a box office hit. Where, you know, when Terminator 2 came out, it was the biggest movie of the year, not only domestically, but in the national. So, you know, that really helped my career. And it was uh, my career was skyrocketing. And I was starting to make like $30 million a movie and to get, you know, 20% back end and stuff like that. So that was really great, great deals. It was really extraordinary. So, I mean, I learned. Everything here in America, then that through bodybuilding. So this is uh, why I wanted to let people know that, look, here's how I learned my lessons in life. And I wrote them down and I wrote them in my book so that others can learn from that because it doesn't do me any good if only I know about it. I want other people to know about it too. And they're not really secret secrets. It's just common sense stuff that I learned throughout the years in bodybuilding and in the gym and working on movie sets and working in Sacramento as governor and all this stuff. I mean, it's like unbelievable, the kind of education that I got. I have to say that, you know, just being up in Sacramento, this capital, the capital became kind of like a university. It was, I learned every day. It was like really amazing. When you list the great directors that you worked with, if you think of each of them, would you say there are any qualities that they all shared? What made those people so great from your perspective? Well, I, I think that all of them had vision. They all, when they tell you the movie that they want to do, you know, they will look out into emptiness and they will kind of tell you of what the movie will be about and what's important in this movie and how you should play the role in this movie and what they're trying to get across. So they were visionaries, all of them. The other thing that is a common thing, and these are the kind of things, again, I mentioned in the book, is uh, here, here, the tools for life. Some of the tools is don't think small, think big. And those guys were big thinkers. So it was not kind of like, oh, let me do a little movie. No, it was like, let us do a movie that really will be a huge smash. And they will be daring enough, like the Jim Cameron, for instance, 
you know, he took on this Terminator movie and then he did the second one, the sequel. But to be able to go and to take the Terminator, that machine that was killing everything in the first one, and to say, I'm going to go and surprise the people. I'm going to go and make the Terminator a good guy that saves people. And let another machine come back from the future and be the kind of a destroyer, the Terminator. I was like kind of like doubting it. I was worried about that. And he just, he had the balls to go and say, yeah, that's what the kind of movie we do. And sure enough, it became the hugest hit. It became the hugest hit of the, of the entire year by changing the character. So that takes balls to do that. And Ivan Reitman, he had the balls I mean, to take me as an action hero and to say, Arnold, I'm going to go and make you famous, not as an action hero, but also as a comedy hero. And I said, wow, that would be really fantastic. And he created the movie Twins. And he said, okay, I'm going to have Danny DeVito and you be twins. And so that was funny to me right off the top. But then he goes, you know, to go and to say, when the studio said, we don't want to do a movie with Schwarzenegger, that's a comedy. Then he would put a picture together. He would have the script written. He would have Danny DeVito and me. We both go in together. We all three of us go in together to Tom Pollock, the Universal Studio, and we go and hype him the movie and uh, make the deal right there. And he went for it. And he, Ivan Reitman, saw it as a huge, huge successful movie. And sure enough, when the movie Twins came out, he was number one at the box office and it made the most money of any movie that I've ever made at that point. So it just shows to you how daring those guys were how much guts they had and how they kind of like did not take a no for an answer. There was key executives that said it would never work. Don't do it. This is a big mistake. And the same thing they said to Jim Cameron, the same thing they said to, to John Millius when he said, okay, Arnold is going to be Conan. And Ed Pressman also said that Arnold is going to be Conan. And Dina Delorette said in the beginning, no, 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 I don't want it out. They forced their way through it and that became Conan. And sure enough, after the third day of filming, Dina Delorentis came up to me. It was in the studio, this warehouse in Madrid, that we were filming the orgy scene that was in the movie. We shot it kind of on the beginning of the movie. And I remember that there was this freezing cold uh, warehouse where we shot the scenes and then Dina came up the stairs. Up the stairs and he came right in front of me. And he hated it. He didn't want me to be calm. So he came up to me right in my face and he said to me, Schwarzenegger, ah, you're Coleman, ah, and turned around and walked off. So John Millius comes over to me, running over to me and says, what did he say? What did he say? I said, he said, Schwarzenegger, you're Coleman. And John Millius, the director, just jumped all over me, hugged me, gave me a big, big beer hug. And he says, congratulations, Alan, congratulations. This is the greatest compliment that you can ever get from Dino. Dino loves the dailies. He watched all the footage we've shot the last three days. He loves it. And he can say, Arnold, there's Conan. Yeah, Matt, this is a compliment. This is the great. I said, well, I felt kind of like I was shocked that he didn't say more. I mean, I, I said, it's just uh, <laughs> He says, no, no, that's all you want to hear. He says, trust me, that's all you want to hear. That's really fantastic. And so John Millie's in the corner right away cigar. Uh, you know, to celebrate the whole thing. And we were smoking up a storm right then and there on the set. But we were all then so excited. 
the Dina finally bought in to the idea that I'm Conan. And so since then, our relationship has been fantastic. And Dina and I did other movies after that together. And he became kind of like a mentor to me and treated me always like a son. And he was absolutely fantastic. So I was very, very sad that he you know, passed away. I think he was like 91 years old. He never worked out in his life, but he, he always ate well and lived a healthy life, I think, you know, and, uh, and so he, he passed away with 91. I also did his eulogy uh, when he passed away here at the cathedral in downtown Los Angeles. He was just a wonderful man and I just loved the guy. What's it like going through life, having people over and over tell you you can't do something and then you do it in the biggest, most beautiful, successful way possible? What does it feel like? Well, I, I first felt kind of like like an idiot because it was if why is everyone always saying, no, you're going to fail in that. Oh, you're never going to make it. You're never going to go to America. Oh, what, are you, what are you talking about? Do you want to be a world champion bodybuilder? Bodybuilding is an American sport. You're Austrian. Why don't you try to play soccer or learn to ski or something like that? So everything was always no, no, no. I then when I came to America, and I want to get into the movies to say, oh, yeah, sure, that's a good one. You in movies, I mean, look, Hercules movies are out. The, the new idols are, you know, Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino. And the Woody Allen, that those are the new guys. They're all weigh 120, 140 pounds. Your 250-pound body is out. I mean, uh, forget about it. So it was always no, no, no. Even when I was going to run for, you know, governor, they said, oh, we have to start first for mayor, run for mayor, and then for state senator. But you can't just go for governor. This is crazy. So it always was no. But then I found out as time went on, this is the most common thing that people do. That if they hear a dream or a vision that is kind of outrageous, people would just say, it's impossible. It's a natural thing. So I'm sure you have heard that, right? Every step of the way. Every exactly. step of the way. Exactly. So we, everybody, it's, it's because you do great things. So of course, when you say now, I want to do this record. I want to produce this record. I want to bring this and this musician together. I want to do this and that sell out the stadium. So they say, oh, no way, uh, a guy's out, he's, he never is going to be, you know, it's always something, it's always a reason why they say no, or it can't be done. And so this is one of the lessons that I talk about also in the book is just don't listen to the naysayers, you know, because if you have a clear vision, that's where you go. So I think one of the things that all of the people, the directors that you mentioned that worked with me, that were really fantastic directors. One of the things that they had in common, all of them was that they had, you know, the vision, that they had the guts to do it, that they didn't think small, they thought big, and they didn't listen to the naysayers. Yeah. That's one of the things, you know, so I myself now, I feel like it's a really a compliment when someone says it's impossible because it means that kind of goes back to what Nelson Mandela said, everything is always impossible until someone does it. Yes. Right? So, yes. Okay. I love that when someone said, oh, it's impossible, Arnold. Because that make, actually motivates me to say, okay, I'm going to show you that it is possible. And then I break this new ground and then everyone else can do it. Yes. And then everyone else says it's possible. You know, but I did, it goes back to, you know, weightlifting and there's many other examples because in weightlifting, I remember it was always kind of like it's impossible to clean and jerk, to lift overhead 500 pounds or over 500 pounds. They tried and they tried and they tried. And everyone always said, this can't be done, this can't be done. We're always failing and all this. And then one time, a Russian weightlifter named Alexiev, he went and he says, okay, 
I want 498 pounds. And you want to do, you know, it's kind of third lift. You want to be safe and still break his record. His other record was 496. So you want to go 498. And uh, because then they go back to Russia and they get some money for that. So anyway, so he was in Columbus, Ohio. And he put on the 498 and he lifted it. Pop overhead. Weight is down. Three green lights light up. Means it was a good lift. And now, of course, because it's a world record, they have to roll it onto the scale because there have to be three judges seeing that, in fact, it is, you know, with those plates, they can always be a little bit off. We don't know. So anyway, they rolled it out, and it was 501 pounds. Wow. So now the world has seen the human being, because they didn't know it was 501 pounds, if he would have known, he maybe wouldn't have lifted it. Yes. But anyway, so now it's 501 pounds. That very same year, Four other weightlifters lifted over 500 pounds. Amazing. After it being impossible. After it being impossible, but it just shows you the power of the mind. Yes. Because you were asking me how much you know, bodybuilding has to do with the body and the mind. The mind is extremely important in every step of the way in your life. Yes, we can will things through it, but the will comes from your mind. And being able to say, I don't care if everyone says no, and it's impossible. I see it. I know I can do it. I'm convinced I can do it. And I go all out to do it. And so, you know, this it's in weightlifting. We've seen it in the, remember the four minute a mile, mm-hmm. running a mile below four minutes. There's endless amount of kind of examples where people have shown their possible becoming possible. You know, and so I think the key thing with all of this is, is you know it because you're successful. I know it because I'm successful. But there is a lot of people out there that don't feel they're successful. And there is always something or a lot of things that are holding them back from being successful. And a little thing like not having a vision, not knowing where to go, what to do next, can trip you up and already make you kind of freeze. And they say, well, what should I do? What, what I do? Or if they listen to people that say it can't be done, it's stupid, don't even try that. You know, so many things like that, or there's people that are just, you know, loners and they don't know how to connect with people. And I always tell people, it is so important to recognize that we are all into kind of like company. We all love to do things together. Don't float around by yourself. It's a waste. You got to be with people. Be with people. I love training with people. I love bicycling with people. I like going for dinner with people. I like talking with people. I like traveling with people. I like going to the football games with people. I like to go skiing with people. We are people that need company because then you kind of have great conversations and you inspire each other. We can't do it alone because there's no such thing, right? So that's why I say there's no such thing as a self-made man because we all need this kind of inspiration and this help. So I always urge people, that's why I wrote this book, uh, because I wanted to let people know, here are some rules that you can use that can help you forward and it helps you also to be successful. Tell me about the camaraderie of the bodybuilding community. When you joined it, what was the feeling? Were they helpful to each other? Did everyone support each other? Tell me about it. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of like almost without saying it, we understood that not everyone is always at your height every day. 
for no reason. We get up sometimes and things are a little off, right? It's not that if someone has taken money from you, or we have obviously made a bad deal, or, you know, you lost your house or something. No, sometimes there's no reason at all. But when you have friends, you cheer each other up and you kind of inspire each other. So when you go to the gym, to just translate it to the gym and to the bodybuilding, I would go with my friends and I would meet them, let's say, at 8 o'clock in the morning in the gym. We start working out and I would just say, all oh, the day I don't really feel good. I don't know. Everything is kind of sore. And it's like, I, I just don't feel with the program today. And then Franco would say, my training partner, he would say, so why don't we just use very little weights? Let's just use light weights and let's just do high reps. And we would lie down and we would just do high reps and with low weights. And then obviously after half an hour, Franco would say, let's, let's put an extra plate on it. Let's just try it out. And then always then I realized that now I've gotten over this period of where everything is painful, everything is sore, and blah, 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 and all this stuff, feeling bad about myself. Then always in the beyond that, and always in the weight set, and feeling good. This is okay. Maybe we should put on some more weight the next set. And so together, he said, you know, I don't feel that great today. I don't know. But let's just, let's just see how far we can go. And so you start talking each other through that. And all of a sudden, because you have two, three training partners, you pop each other up and you forget about this. And then all of a sudden, you end up with a great, great workout. So this training partners, it pulled you out of this kind of dark spot where you didn't feel good when you came into the gym. And now you left the gym feeling great and going for lunch now together with the, with the gang. And feeling that you had a great, great pop and everything. So... I think that doing things together and supporting each other and pumping each other up, I think it's so important. And it's also fun. I mean, when I see someone doing an exercise in the gym and I see them in a doing kind of like half reps and I say to them, is it, did you plan on doing half reps? No, why am I doing half reps? Well, I don't want to criticize you, but I mean, it like, seems to me that if you go and do a pull down exercise, why not go all the way up to the top with your arms and then pull all the way down with where the bar goes to your chest and then all the way up again? That's the full motion. I said, that's what I would do. I always found out in my training that the more I do full movement, the better it works. And then they said, well, thank you very much. That's so kind of you that you, that you say that. Uh, I said, well, let me just check it out. Let's go for it. And then I just count out the reps for them. And, you know, they feel fantastic. They have just now learned something. So this is how you help each other, even with, with strangers. I do it with strangers. Amazing. Because it makes me feel good that I could help someone else because I know how great it makes me feel when someone helps me. Yes. And so this is always like a give and take with everything like that. You know, so this is why I always say to people, give back. Don't just take, but give back. It's very, very important. It can make it feel just as good as receiving, is giving something. When I was a little kid, your book, The Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, came out, and everyone I knew had it. It was like the Bible. It was the, it was the reference book that every kid used yeah. who was inspired by you or by bodybuilding and just wanted to get into shape. It's amazing. How successful has that book been over the course of its life? Must be insane. Oh, yes. It is insane. It's really unbelievable. And so I think that's what it's all about. I don't know. If you remember when uh, Mikey Kibis connected us. Yes, I remember because I called you because I was about to have a surgery and I was terrified exactly. and you had the surgery. So, right. and I thought if I talked to someone who had the surgery and lived, 
it would feel better than just going in blind. And you really helped me a lot. Yeah, but I mean, that's what I'm talking about. See, I've known you. Yes. And I've known your career and I've known your successes. And I know what a spectacular producer you are and record that uh, you make the most extraordinary records working with the hugest bands and rock and roll stars and all this stuff. I knew all this is it, but no matter how successful you are and how powerful you are, that is a scary thing to go through, to have a heart surgery. It's a scary thing to do. I know, I remember when I went through it. So of course, when I went through it, I called people and asked them what was it like to have a heart surgery. And they would kind of Skype me through with it. Don't worry about it, Alan. I mean, it's just one of those things, you know, they would take good care of you. You're going to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And so when I heard that you have a heart surgery and then Michael Kiewicz said, do you want to talk to him? I said, yeah, of course I want to talk to him. I said, because I need to let him know that it is not, it is a big deal, but then I had it's not a big deal because he doesn't have to do anything. You know, the heart surgeon is doing all the work, you know, so yeah. he's just lying there under anesthesia. And then, then you wake up and then he is, what to expect. And so we went through it, what do you expect when you wake up and from that point on and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've done unbelievable because you've taken all the advice and I mean, how much weight did you lose since then? I lost uh, 130 pounds over the course so of, can you from when mine was heavy. It's unbelievable. Miracle. I mean, how lean, how lean you are now. I mean, it literally took like 10 years of you, of your life. Yes. Age wise. I mean, it made you 10 years younger. Yes. But being now Nina and everything like that. So, uh, but I mean, but this is the very thing I'm talking about is that it made me feel great that I could go and pump you up before heart surgery and then go and make you feel like it's okay. That's just the way, you know, because the last thing you want is have the heart surgery and worry about it like crazy, right? So, that, so anyway, so this idea, and the same thing is not, so of course there will be people that will be calling you and say, hey, I have heart surgery, tell me all about it. So then you pump them up, and you spend a half an hour, or an hour, or two hours on the phone with them, and you talk to them, and you make them feel good, right? Yes. So this is, this is what I'm talking about, is it's, it's so important that we recognize we are so powerful if we do things together, and not just think that I can do it by myself, or I can do it alone, I'm a self-made man. It's all such things. It's all nonsense. We need each other. That is the key thing. I remember when I called you. You were in Europe. We were in a very different time zone, right. and you were smoking a cigar and playing poker. But right. you took time out from the game to talk to me. And I just remember the scene. It was just such a wild scene. Growing up, watching you now talking to you, smoking a cigar, playing poker, and trying to calm me down about heart surgery. It was a wild experience. So I thank you very much again for that. No, no, you're welcome. How is everything going with the music business? Everything's cool. Making music like uh, a fiend. Can't stop. <laughs> so we worked together back on Last Action Hero, right? Yes. I produced the ACDC song that was the for the soundtrack for The Last Action Hero. Yeah, and then I was in it in the music video. Yes. With them. It was, it was really a lot of fun. Kind of like, I think the story was of me going in there and uh, not really approving of the crowd that much and just being amazed at everything I saw. I got up very close to the musicians and checked out and they made their moves and, and with the way they played the guitar and all that. It was, it was a lot of fun. 
doing that because by that time I have done one other one, which was with Axel Rose, Guns N' Roses. We have done it for Terminator 2. And uh, so I really enjoyed that. That was also fun to do. And uh, so I said myself, you know, it's really amazing that I'm getting involved, uh, even though I'm not musically inclined, even though I love music, but I'm not musically inclined. My father played six instruments. Really? With trumpet, saxophone, clarinet, flute one, and all of those kind of instruments. And he was also the conductor at the Chantemarie, which is kind of the police music in Styria, the province that I grew up in. So he was, you know, playing a lot of funerals and a lot of times out in, this, in the city park where he dragged us to, to listen to him, which of course we had no interest in. So he always wanted me to learn an instrument. So I just never got it. You know, he decided to teach me how to play the trumpet, but I didn't get it. Then he decided to go and have me go to the farmer next door who was also a musician and he played the guitar. And he tried to teach me how to play the guitar, and I didn't get that either. So it was, like I said, I did not understand when they had the music, the notes, and all of that. I just didn't quite connect dots there. And so they just gave up. Did your dad used to play in the house? Would you hear yeah, him yeah, play? Yeah. Oh, no, there was like, there was a kid, that, uh, my school colleague, that was living 100 yards from us in a little shack. And uh, they were, you know, poorer than we were. And he was very talented. And he still the day plays the trumpet with the flea one. So my father would go and open up the windows when I was working out outside uh, in, in our house. And while I was working out, he would be playing the trumpet. And my friend then started playing the trumpet across the street around the hundred yards away, also the trumpet. So, I mean, the whole neighborhood heard us play the trumpet, heard all this music. And they were going back and forth and back and forth. It was wonderful. Do you think that your dad's work ethic with music inspired your work ethic in the gym? He was very disciplined and he wrote music. And I remember him writing the notes and all the pages after pages after pages with the black ink and with the pen, you know, just put the ink well and then just would write the music and all that stuff. And so he was really into it. I mean, it was like music was it. And I don't know where he got it really from, to be honest with you, because I don't know. I think maybe my relatives, man, uh, they maybe comes from music, I don't know. But I mean, he was really into it. You mentioned earlier about when Franco said, maybe we'll do lighter weights, more reps. Tell me about heavy weights, less reps versus lighter weights, more reps. What's the philosophy? Well, first of all, it's always better to go lighter weights and more reps. Why? Because so many people injure themselves. Because if you don't have a really skilled trainer with you, there's a lot of exercises that you do, like squats, deadlifts, bend over rowing, and shoulder presses and stuff like that, where you really can hurt your back and then you can, where you can hurt your knees and your hips and your shoulders and all that stuff and upper back. So I always say to people, I say, if you train in most cases, I would just rather go lighter than heavier. I've found the joy of lighter training only by accident, really, because after I had my heart surgery, the doctor said to me, he says, look, we replaced your valves. So don't go anymore like, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like lift 600 pounds. It's over. He said, because every time you do that restraining and you keep your ear in and you try to lift a heavy weight, 
it puts a lot of pressure on that valve. So the idea of it is, is to have that valve last as long as possible. Eventually, we have to replace the valve. Maybe in 10 years from now, maybe in 15 years from now. But the more heavy you train, the faster we have to replace. So then as them as I go, you know, let me forget that. I'm going to go and shift now. I'm going to just do 15, 20 reps, everything, into a lighter weight that I can easily do and really get, kind of concentrate on those movements and get the same pump. And that's what I started doing. And I tell you something, my injuries went away and uh, I still felt great physically. I still got the pump and everything like this. So I realized that it is, you know, not advantageous to overload. Yes, if you are young, you're 15, 20 years old, and you really want your muscles to grow, and yes, you want to gain strength, then you have to do powerlifting training. Then you have to go and do the first set, 15 reps, then 10 reps, 5 reps, 3 reps, 3 reps, 3 reps, 3 reps, in order to really let the mind and the body know this is the weight you need to lift. So to get comfortable with the heavy, heavy weight. So yes, there are moments like that. I did all of that when I was young, when I was in weightlifting and powerlifting, competing, you know, we lifted like my best deadlift was like 710 pounds. Wow. And with squats, I was doing like 600 and bench press 525 and all this stuff. So yeah, I lifted heavy weights, but there comes the time where you got to kind of get off the heavy weights and then lift lighter weights, do the exercises correct. And the key thing now is the mental aspect again, that you got to be inside your body when you train. You know, just to go look around and to go through the motion is not going to do anything. You have to really concentrate. When I train my bicep, I'm with my mind inside the bicep. When I train my chest, I'm inside my pectoral muscles in my chest. So I, I really mentally feel when I do chin-ups, I feel the lats and the wings in the back, you know, kind of moving and all this stuff. So I think the key thing is to really concentrate. And I think that all the great athletes will tell you that the more you are inside the sport, the more you kind of look at it also as a mental thing, the better it is for you, the more success you will have. Do you think it would be possible to put yourself inside the movement and do it with no weights, but still get the experience of the weight just mentally? Is it possible? Absolutely. You're good. And it's something that you would do if you don't have weights around it. It's better than not doing anything. It's like, I remember the weightlifters when they didn't have weights to train with and they would travel around the world to go to a world championship competition. They would just press against some door. You know, inside the door, they would just press against the door frame. Uh, they would pull against something really hard, so something static, and they would get just as much of a workout doing that, and much much better than not doing anything. You know, so that's that's always I think that the, the key thing. How did the movie Pumping Iron come about? Well, it's interesting you asked that because it was number one. It was Pumping Iron that got Ed Pressman the idea to buy the Conan rights. And to have me play Conan. Incredible. So it was pumping iron. It was not Stay Hungry or any of the other projects that I've done. It was pumping iron because there I could show my personality and everything. Well, George Butler, who was the photographer for the book Pumping Iron that came out in, I think, in 72 or 73, and the writer was Charles Gaines. He came to me in 1975 and said, 
I would like to do the documentary of, of bodybuilding and record it pumping out. And I said, great. And he says, but the only problem is you have retired last year from bodybuilding competition. So you would have to come back and compete again. Because otherwise I don't have a documentary. If you're not competing in it, I don't have a documentary. So I said, let me think about it. So I thought about it for a while. And then I told him, okay, I go back to competition, go down to South Africa, where the Miss Olympia competition was in Pretoria and compete again. And they would film my training and also my competitors, my competition, film their training also. And so that's what they did. For the next four months, they filmed, 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 filmed everything, all my training and the competition itself and all that stuff. And then after they've edited it, they actually saw some stories that kind of came out of filming that were not fully developed. And then they went and shot after it was done in order to make the stories become alive, so to speak. But they were not really kind of like, you know, true stories. They were like kind of like bogus. So the only thing in pumping out that was true, it was reality, was the training and the competition. So but the, everything else, when you saw, for instance, Mike Cat looking for his underwear backstage, and it made it sound like Ken Waller, uh, his competitor friend, uh, he kind of hit them so to throw him off a little bit. That was only just because they had the footage of him looking for the underwear. But now they said, let's go back and film Ken Waller saying, I'm going to hide this underwear. I'm going to fuck up with his brain a little bit. I think that he may lose because of the Jimmy Cards lost the competition. You can water stuff. Those were the kind of things that were kind of like fabricated, little things like that. But so they could, that's why we call it a docudrama rather than a documentary. But everything else was a real documentary. It was real footage. And because people got really interested in the personalities uh, in the movie, it became like a huge hit. Came one became one of the most popular documentaries, I think, of all time. And it was huge. It was played in the car, in Cannes when we all went over there to the film festivals. It was a huge smash. We got international release uh, for the movie. So it really got the kind of attention as that a regular movie would get. Except it was a documentary. It cost around $800,000. I think that originally $500,000, the budget eventually went to $850,000. And it was a fantastic success. I was very happy that I was in it. It helped my career. I think when the Hollywood foreign press saw Pumping Iron, I think they gave me the Gold Globe Award for Stay Hungry, which was a movie I did just before that because of Pumping Iron. I think that they saw both of these movies, then they saw my personality and they got the, the Gold Globe Award for Best Acting Debut because of Stay Hungry. But I think it was also because of Pumping Iron. So Pumping Iron was really very important for me and for my career and for bodybuilding. Remember that this movie, this documentary, is being seen day and night in thousands and thousands of gymnasiums all over the world, all day long. Like in Gold's Gym, you walk in there at 7 in the morning, Pumping Iron is on. You walk in there at 7 at night, Pumping Iron is on. So kids and people get inspired by it. You still can see it on television. I mean, it's really fantastic. It's a beautiful movie, and it really is inspiring, yeah. and it gives us yeah. a, a view of a world that you can't imagine. If you're not in that world, you can't picture it. I, I just want to tell you also yeah. that when I talk about the, the so many ingredients that helped to make bodybuilding as big as it is today, 
And one of those ingredients is George Butler that directed Pumping Iron and Charles Gaines that wrote the book Pumping Iron and also that wrote the book Stay Hungry, which is the movie that I did. Uh, so those guys came along in the early 70s and they did a lot of features for various different magazines about bodybuilding and other sports. And when they came around, they started articulating so well and photographing bodybuilding. This is really what had a tremendous impact. And all of a sudden, the, the book Pumping Iron became a bestseller and it was like selling everywhere around the world and bodybuilding became more and more popular. So those guys were extremely important for the growth of bodybuilding in the early stage. Tell me something about bodybuilding that people who are not bodybuilders can't know. I think that uh, probably what people should know is that it doesn't matter if you're five years old or if you're 100 years old, you can do it. People always think this is for young people, but it's not. There is a guy with the name of Henry Downs that's a Canadian bodybuilder. He's now 90 and some years old. And I competed with him at the Mr. Universe contest in London. And then I was 19 and he was already over 30 uh, years old. It was like 36 or whatever. He was one of the oldest bodybuilders and competitors. And I just saw the, uh, a month ago a video of him still exercising in his, his 90s. Incredible. I mean, think about that. Amazing. So it just shows to you there is people that are working out, women and men that are working out and they're doing it in a, for forever. And they feel like that this is really what helps them. What is interesting about it is in the old days, it was an absolute no-no to do weight training. Uh, you know, as far as what the guy, it wasn't Henry Towns, it was Vic Towns that I was talking about earlier, the Canadian guy, Vic Towns. I just remember his first name, Vic Towns. But anyway, so in the, in the early days when I got involved in bodybuilding, they said bodybuilding is bad for your health. You know, you get muscle bound, it's bad for your heart, it's bad for this, it's bad for that, and all that stuff. Now it's exactly the opposite. All the research has shown that if you do exercises every day, that it belongs to life. It doesn't matter if you're women or men. It doesn't matter what your condition is, your health condition. You got to exercise every day, and now they're using it for therapy. I mean, weight resistance training has become the number one thing. My girlfriend is a physical therapist, and she has a clinic in uh, Santa Monica here. And she has like 46 people working for her. She's like 150 to 200 patients coming through every day, and they all work out and do resistance with weights. The football players that are coming in that they have surgery, it's knee surgery, they're working out with weights right after that. The baseball players that are having shoulder surgeries and elbow surgeries, they immediately go back to the weight resistance training. I mean, heart patients to weight resistance training. I mean, everyone is doing weight resistance training. This is where the action is today. So, I mean, everything that they used to think is bad, now everyone is writing about it, that it is the best thing that you can do, and you have to do it every day. Amazing. Conan was the first movie after Pumping Iron? No. So I did, uh, I did the first... Stay Hungry was in 75, and then after was Pumping Iron in 75, 76. And then after that, I did Streets of San Francisco and the Jane Mansfield story. And uh, then I did a movie with Kirk Douglas and then Margaret called The Villain. 
And then after that, I got the, the Conan role. It was the first in the national big studio movie. It was like the number one. It came out number one in the box office. Matter of fact, when we had test screenings in Las Vegas, they had a theater for 500 people. And out there was 3,000 people standing in line. 3,000. So, I mean, every gymnasium, I think, in Vegas and around Vegas or Nevada, they heard that Conan was being screened. So they all came to the theater and they had to have three more screenings after that because people wouldn't leave. So there's three more screenings. So when Universal Studio heard about it, they were so ecstatic they started putting more money into the budget of the promotion of the movie and all that. And the movie was very, very successful. What was the experience like going on to a set, starring in a movie, not a bodybuilding movie, but an acting movie, an action movie, essentially? What was it like? What was going on in your head? Well, I felt that I had to do the work because Conan is one of those roles, one of the lifetime roles, right? I mean, so you get it right or you don't. And so to me, it was important, and I think the director, John Lilius, he had me watch Buffoni in The Seven Samurais. And he said, watch Buffoni and watch Seven Samurais very carefully because this is the attitude that Conan should have. And that's exactly when I saw it, I said, well, Buffoni is like a sword master. I mean, he looked fantastic as a samurai. So, okay, I got the message from Lilius. I should really practice the sword really a lot. And so three years before the movie was filmed, in 1977, I started working with the sword and with a sword master by the name of Yamasaki, Sensei Yamasaki, who just passed away literally like 10 days ago, whatever it was. But he became my trainer, and he spent every week three times, uh, three hours with me wow. practicing with sword. So, but not only samurai swords, bronze swords, and uh, wooden swords and plastic swords and all kinds of different swords he would bring around and then practicing with axes and with spears and all this. And so we would practice and practice and practice. And then the horseback riding was also extremely important. And so I would just, you know, train horseback riding, going out here with Terry Leonard, who was the stunt coordinator of Conan. And so he would take me out three times a week horseback riding then when we went to Spain, months before we started filming, I was horseback riding every single day, all day long. I was sitting on a horse. We were going for lunch with the horse. We were going for dinner with the horse. Everything was on the horse. So it became second nature. And then having always the sword with me, practicing the sword. So when we actually started filming, I never really got intimidated by the scenes, so overwhelmed by the scenes, because I always felt kind of, I was ready. And it was kind of the seventh piece. Proper prior planning prevents pistol performance, right? So this is what it was. It was like, Arnold, just be prepared. That the proper prior planning is extremely important here because you don't want to give a shitty performance. And so this is, I was training, training and training, practicing and practicing and rehearsing the scenes, the dialogue. I, there was a, two actors that were like genius actors. One was James Earl Jones who is unbelievable. He played Falser Doom. And so I went to him regularly to his motorhome to work with me at my acting and then how to deliver the lines, 
in a more dramatic way and all this stuff. And then there was uh, Max Consider, who was now an Academy Award winning or nominating kind of a character who was extraordinary, who was in the movie, played the priest in The Exorcist. And he did many other movies, of course. Uh, but the man, he was, he played the king, King Harold, I think was his name, King Kona. But so anyway, I went to him also to his trailer and asked him to help me with my acting. He, I would just, anyone that was able to kind of help me, I would ask him for the help. And because I always say, you know, just uh, shut your mouth and open your mind. This is always my rule. It's one of the rules in my book because instead of, instead of talking uh, so much when you go to the set, just listen to the wise actors that are there and just open your mind and let them teach you how to become better and greater. That's how you become successful. So it's really about being humble enough to be open to learn, to not feel like you know everything, not feel like you have to do it your way, but to learn the wisdom from the people around you with more experience. Well, absolutely. And, you know, there's no one that I know that, that likes to learn more than me. I mean, I'm like a sponge. You know, that's why I love to listen because I always feel like there's so much that you need to learn, Arnold. You're a fucking idiot. You know nothing. So I beat myself up all the time, you know. You know nothing. So open up your mind and just listen. And so it was like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in Sacramento and you listen to the legislators, to all of the various different kind of problems that they have. Listen, listen, listen. And then listen to the experts on how to solve those problems. It doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican. Listen and just let it get all this information into your mind. And that's how you get enriched. And so I did this with movie making. I did this in politics, in policy, you know, in, in my after school programs with educational and special Olympics. And I became the international coach of special Olympics. I listened very carefully. How do you deal with the special Olympics? How do you train with them? How do you train them? How do you reward them? And all of this kind of stuff. So it was like, you know, life to me is kind of an ongoing, never-ending learning experience. As soon as you feel like you know it all, that's when you're the stupidest. Because otherwise you would never think you know it all. When you first went into acting or when you first went into politics, do you think that there was some advantage you had by not having experience or not having the baggage of the past that you were coming in with a clean slate? Was that one of the strengths you had? Well, it, it, has, it has certain advantages when you're kind of like a naive. Because I remember when I became governor, one of the Republicans said, because I made a certain decision, and he said to his Republican colleagues, he says, you know, I support Governor Schwarzenegger. And they were always supportive. But we have to recognize that he's politically naive. And I was sitting right there when he said that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I didn't feel offended by it at all because the fact was I was. But it was my advantage because by being naive and by not accepting just things the way they were made me recognize that we in America have gerrymandering. And gerrymandering is the evil of all evils. Explain to me about gerrymandering. I don't know anything well, about it's, it. It's just, it's just, you know, that the, the whole United States is carved up in districts. And this is where our representatives from, like a congressman, he will have a certain district, congressional district. So the way every 10 years, because the population moves around, sometimes there's more minorities going here, 
or there, those were foreigners here, there, and more white people there, there. You know, all this is so all of this is being just kind of like watched and then you go and redraw the district lines accordingly. But what happens is the district lines are being drawn in most cases by politicians. So they will draw the district line in a way to protect their job. So the Democrats would draw the district lines so that all the Democrats are in one area. So all you have to do there is just be way to the left and you will win the nomination from the Democrats. And the Republicans will kind of close in and lock in their district. So it's a Republican district. So all you have to do there is be way to the right, and then you win your district. Now imagine when the, the Democrats and the Republicans go now to Sacramento or whatever capital it is. And one is way to the right, one is way to the left. Nothing gets done. So now the idea is just how do we go get them closer together so that they can work together? Well, he did, the way the districts are drawn, you can't do that. So what I said was, is this, well, wait a minute, that we are having a fixed system here. I know I have to do anything. And you always get reelected, you have a job security, but in the meantime, nothing is getting done. They said, yeah, absolutely right. And so I said, well, we're going to change that. We're going to go and have the districts drawn by ordinary folks that are experts in maps, but not by politicians. Well, you can't do that. So Democrats and Republicans are like, well, it really mattered. They said, how could you start tackling this problem? This is not the problem. We love it. And this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I put, the, put it on a ballot, an initiative on the ballot if the people vote. And twice we lost because we couldn't really explain to ordinary folks what redistricting is about and what gerrymandering is about. But some people were saying, is this, oh, why did he give up? Is this ever going to happen? Why did you know that the naysayers, right? Why did he give up? It's not going to work and all this stuff. But sure enough, in 2008, we won. Then uh, two years later, we won also primaries. So now both of those things are now won. California now carved itself out as being unique. It was kind of one of the first states that created its own kind of independent redistricting commission to draw the district lines and take that responsibility away from the politicians. So now the politicians went nuts because of that. But it now created fair districts. And now it became the model for the rest of the country. So now one-third of the districts in America already drawn by independent commissions. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done because this is a 200-year-old kind of like villain in America that is uh, totally a fixed system and where people sometimes have 70% of uh, certain votes, but they get only like 30% of representation through the congressional seats and all this. I mean, it's just a terrible, terrible system. We fixed it in California, and I'm kind of like promoting it all over the, the country that they should fix it and to have independent redistributing commissions. You know? So there's certain things like this, but it's because of my naivety. That I saw that and I found that, that you can think that we have to do something about it. We should not take that lying down and say, that's the way it always was. That's the way, you know, they meant to do it 200 years ago. And therefore, we should go along with it. So I kind of like felt being an outsider, no, this is not acceptable. We got to do something about it. So this just gives you one example. And there's many other examples. Like, for instance, when you are a little bit more naive about things, you just in general don't accept the status quo. Yeah, you don't know what's impossible. Exactly. That's right. So, so when I, for instance, in California, 
You know, they always say, you know, when we have an emergency, we are not really prepared. And I said, well, this is inexcusable. We will be re prepared. And so we go and we started practicing and preparing ourselves, which drove everyone nuts. But I, I did it because I want to make sure that if you have an earthquake, we are prepared. Do we really know what the procedure is if there's an earthquake and everything is coming down? All of our infrastructure and all this. What is the procedure? Where do we go? How do we communicate and all these things? What hospitals will be available? How would the hospitals increase in the amount of bed size, uh, the, the, the beds, the amount of beds that they have, the amount of rooms they have, surgery rooms that they have, and all this stuff. So we worked on all that stuff. And so to me, I think it is very, very important that we kind of like step outside and take a different approach rather than just accepting the status quo. So to me, there was always an advantage. Bodybuilding also looked at bodybuilding differently, not to look at it the same way as everyone else did. In weightlifting, it was the same way. In acting, it was the same way. I was the first one that really said to Universal Studio, you guys are crazy to just promote the movies in three countries, in Japan, in Germany, and in America. I said, it's insane. You should go to 10, 20 different countries and promote the movie and start increasing the popularity of movies in these other countries. And they said, no, no, you're crazy. Well, I went with Conan the Barbarian to 15 different countries. Wow. They were successful in these 15 different countries. And now, of course, they're sending the actors all over the world because now finally they realize that the world is the marketplace. It's not just America and Germany and Japan, but you have the whole world. If it's the Middle East, if it's African countries, maybe there's less money coming from these places, unlike South America. But let's go and promote the movie in every country and in every continent all over the world. So there's a kind of like being having a fresh mind and being an outsider. You look at things differently. Considering you married into the most important Democrat family in the history of the country, yeah. how did you choose to run as a Republican? Well, I was a Republican from the time I came to America in 1968. So when I listened to Hubert Humphrey, who was running for president in 1968, and then I listened to Richard Nixon, so there was no two ways about that to make my mind, coming from a socialist country, that I was more with Nixon. So I felt like when Humphrey talked, it was like being back in Austria. So I said, that's, that's not what I want. I want something different. And so I became naturally, because of Nixon, a Republican, uh, and, and it was clearly a Nixon Republican, which means that he was open-minded because Nixon was a Republican, but he also was seeking for universal health care. He was also starting out the EPA in Washington, the Environmental Protection Agency. So he was in the environment, protecting the environment. He was also for fighting uh, in the pollution. Uh, so it was a, a lot of things that, that he had and a, a genius in foreign policy, and with, especially with his sidekick, you know, Henry Kissinger, uh, who was also very, very smart. So, so all of this, so this was known to Maria when I went out with her in the beginning, and uh, also her father. I always said it at the, on the dinner table, I'm a Nixon fan. And uh, of course, in the later 70s, that was not a, a good thing to say, because now we have gone through Watergate, and we have gone through, and Sergeant Schreiber, father, ran against Nixon because he was the vice presidential candidate with McGovern. So uh, Sergeant Schreiber, when I said, I love Nixon, <laughs> you know, he always, he always started coughing. 
is a crock, is a crock, you know, and all that stuff. So, so of which I totally understood, you know, that that's from his point of view, because then, you know, they were in charge of and they're responsible for breaking into the national headquarters of the Democratic Party and all that stuff. And there were major, major mistakes made. At the bottom line is policy wise, I always admired him and thought it was great. So I modeled myself kind of after that. But I mean, that didn't mean that I closed my mind to the democratic way of thinking. So, so when I listened to conversations at the Shriver House or at the Kennedy House, wherever we were, you know, I thought there were really profound and very interesting ways of approaching problems. And what I loved about the family was that they always talked about solving problems, you know, solving issues. And so I just kind of like got so excited about it. It was like in the early days when someone talked to me about, uh, around me about fitness and about weight training, uh, this was kind of a new world that I'm always picking up all this information and I'm learning things that I never even thought of. And all of a sudden I'm thinking about it. And so, so it was really great that I was kind of learning from them, getting motivated and inspired by them and about policy. And then later on that actually had an effect on me that I wanted to run for governor, but I never changed party because of that, you know? And I just thought that they have good ideas. I have good ideas. Republicans have good ideas. And the trick of it is for us to work together. Democrats and Republicans have to work together to utilize 100% of our brain power rather than just 50% of get the, the brain and power. And get the job done, not just be stuck. Not just be stuck. That's right. It's all about getting the job done. That's right. Amazing. Yeah. Of the three different work lives you've had, which would you say was the most difficult? You know, I don't think I could put a, a thing on, on any of them because I think that bodybuilding was extremely difficult and to work your ass off to become a champion and to stay in there for a long time and all that stuff. So it was really, it was really tough. And the same was with show business and the amount of injuries that you get and stunts in show business and the dangers that you face, you know, that you can be one day up high and you have a movie that comes out, it goes through the roof in the box office. The next day you come out with a movie and it goes in the toilet. And then all of a sudden you're nobody. So you're always as good as the last movie. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, that's also tough. And then, of course, I have to say that the biggest responsibility is being governed because when you do movies, it's not kind of the end of the world if a movie sucks and it, it goes in the toilet. It's just that people say, okay, that movie was not that good. But then when you govern government, you serve 40 million people. You know, that is a huge responsibility. And now you really have to kind of connect and find out what is it that the people want? It's like John F. Kennedy said, let's not seek the Republican answer to a problem or the Democratic answer to a problem. Let's seek the right answer and the, the right solution. And this is, I think, the big challenge that you have at all times to find the right solution for the problems. And those problems change all the time. So we have to recognize that also. But so it, I think the responsibility-wise, it's the biggest responsibility was being governor and also the most pleasurable. I mean, it, it, to me, I got the most satisfaction out of serving the people. There's nothing like it than to serve the people of California. And also there's a rippling effect that you help people all over America. And like with our environmental issues and good government practice, there's a rippling effect all over the world. So we have had an impact worldwide. So, I mean, 
But I was very fortunate to have three careers, to have learned from all three careers that I talk about in my book being useful. And, uh, and now I'm combining all of those three talents into one so that I can use all of those three talents and move forward and make it just a better world, make people more fit, motivate people, make them more successful, and do my TV series in the bar and other TV shows and the movies and stuff like that, and continue with my after-school programs. So I'm having really a great time doing all my different careers. Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much for sharing the wisdom of your incredible life, and look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, you got it. Thank you very much and good luck with everything.